This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There was an elephant in the room when we sat down with Governor John Hickenlooper at the state capitol yesterday. Or maybe it was a donkey, not an elephant. The question of whether Hillary Clinton will choose Hickenlooper to be her running mate. It's where we started our regular conversation. Governor, thanks for being with us again. No, glad to be back on. Rate your level of anticipation waiting to hear from, or not, Democrat (laughs) Hillary Clinton and whether she chooses you to be her vice presidential candidate. I think you'd have to talk to the campaign, and that's our... our, No, 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 what is your level of anticipation? Our protocol is to to direct all questions having anything to do with the vice presidential candidate selection to the campaign. Even your level of anticipation has to be directed to Secretary Clinton. Uh, no, just to the campaign. There are okay. many people you could talk to and they would give you, I'm sure, you know, uh, insights. You told us a little while ago that you hoped she would not call. But I wonder, would any part of you be disappointed if she didn't? Or do I have to direct this to I think you have to wait. Uh, you know, I know it's bitter, but I think you have to wait a few more days. Okay. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, The Democratic National Convention starts Monday. You will speak next Thursday. What do you want to tell the country? Well, we've been talking about that. Obviously, the... Who's we? Your staff has some... Yeah. yeah. And the question, I mean, obviously, there's a a part of it that's about a campaign, right? And what this country looks like uh, if you have a... Well, obviously, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump. And I think these are clear differences. So that'll obviously be part of it. But I also, I've been trying to get clear on what the roots of the... Not just the anger within the Republican Party, but the anger within the Democratic Party. And we saw a lot of that with Bernie Sanders, the supporters of Bernie Sanders there. They think the system's rigged. They're, they're, they're furious about the state of the world as they see it, as it affects them. And I think part of it, at least, is coming from how rapidly our economy is, I mean, whole careers are vanishing in a decade. And it's very difficult to get people trained and transitioned into new, whole new careers using our old system. And so we've we've made a bunch of progress in the last couple of years on how do you get a new system so that you look at skills, not just degrees. If someone has the skills to enter the new industries, how do we get them trained for their new career much, much faster? That so I think we might try and talk about that a little bit in the in the speech. I mean it sounds like the I suppose you could call them populist movements on both the left and right have been persuasive. To John Hickenlooper. I'm not sure it's persuasive. It's as much as is. I am persuaded that there are a lot of people out there very frustrated and angry uh, with what they see as their, their present and their future. And I think we have an obligation to try and figure out really what is at the core of that. And again, there are so many different situations and different reasons for different people. But we need to dig in there as much as we can and say, all right, if it is people you know, who haven't had a raise in five years or are making less money now than they made 10 years ago because they lost their old career and now they're trying to get footing in a new career. How can we mitigate that? How can we do a better job of getting those folks back up to making the kinds of salaries they were making before? When you go to events like the Democratic National Convention, you know, national political gatherings, are you typecast as the dude from the state with marijuana? <laughs> is, that, is that the question you most often encounter? One of the great benefits of, of 
Well, I would say perhaps the only great benefit of Donald Trump running for president is the fact that he is now the first person I get asked about. The first thing that's brought up in any interview is where do you stand on Donald Trump? What are your insights or observations? Uh, Marijuana is still the second. The flags outside of this Capitol building are lowered in honor of the law enforcement officers killed in Baton Rouge last weekend. When you saw what happened there and in the earlier killing of a citizen in Baton Rouge, also the events in Dallas, Minnesota. Do you think about what you could do to cut down on the potential for that kind of violence in Colorado? Absolutely. And I, I, I immediately went back to when I first got into public service, ran for mayor of Denver in 2003, never ran in anything before. And between when I got elected and when I was inaugurated, uh, a 15-year-old kid named Paul Childs uh, was shot in his own home. The police officer wasn't an evil person. And this kid, Paul Childs, had developmental disabilities, and he's walking around with a knife and coming towards the police officer. We went to great efforts, and, and, and Mayor Wellington Webb was rock solid in terms of stepping up and working with me to how do we really completely reinvent how we train police officers, make sure that every police officer has crisis intervention training? How do we make sure that we have a civilian oversight board and, and that we're measuring instances of how often each officer is stopping people based on, on race or age or whatever. This young man was African-American. You created the Independent Monitor, for right. instance, in the city of Denver. It all came which out. Has- we, 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 we put beanbag shotguns in every car. We got tasers. We tried to get the police officers more choices that were, that were non-lethal. And yet you could look at the legacy and more recently what has happened in the city and county of Denver and say, boy, the city has not figured this out. It's paid out a lot of settlements in abuse cases. It is a very difficult situation to deal with always. I mean, policing has got to be one of the hardest jobs there is. The vast majority, I mean, the vast majority of police officers, and I know a lot of police officers after eight years as mayor, they are wonderful people. And they they put their lives on the line. They risk themselves for people they don't even know. The, The vast majority, I wouldn't trade for anybody. I would do anything for them. But there are always a, a couple bad apples in a barrel, and you know our job is to try and get them out of the police force. And do you feel you have the tools to do that? I'm obviously asking you as governor now, and not a mayor. Of sure, Denver. and I want to think. And Mayor Hancock is, is, trust me, this is right at the top of his list of priorities. Part of what a governor does is support the local municipalities and and mayors everywhere. Mayor Hancock doesn't have all the tools he needs, but it's much better than it was let's say, 12 years ago. The tools he needs to get rid of bad apples? Yes, so, so that, that that discipline matrix. And I've always, I mean, it's blatantly unfair that police officers who have, have perfect reputations, have never done anything wrong, their lives are put at risk by those bad apples. Uh, and it's, uh, people are uncomfortable talking about it, but I think it's real. And we changed the discipline matrix some years ago in Denver, and now a number of police forces have, have followed suit around the state, so that even like lying about how and what happened during an incident, first time, you can be fired now. But in short, you think that there's more room in these matrices to get rid of bad apples. Sure, although you've got to make sure as you're changing these things, you've got to recognize that most police officers, this is their careers, and you've got to be very careful to make sure that they're getting the full protection and that, they're, that you're not changing the matrix in some way that puts an unfair burden on them. And that's why it's, it's happened in increments. I, I mean, look at race relationships as a whole. We have come so far. And yet, 
let's be honest, we've still got a, a, a long way to go. What would you say to someone who says, no, race relations aren't getting better, they're getting worse? In any change over a long period of time, there are always going to be setbacks. I mean, every great social revolution in the history of this country, in the history of the world, the, the successes have been built on many, many failures. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are back at the state capitol for our regular conversation with Democratic Governor John Hickenlooper. You've spoken about guns recently in two high-profile settings. One was at the Aspen Ideas Festival, the other in New York at a forum that was put on by Reuters, the news agency. You spoke alongside gun control advocates both times, including a mom who lost a child at Sandy Hook Elementary School. What's the best idea you heard about guns at either of these forums? The district attorney of Brooklyn is a guy named Ken Thompson, young, very smart, very talented African-American. And I think his insights of, if you look at gun deaths that are, I mean, the vast majority aren't with assault weapons. They're usually with handguns. And the majority of people being killed are young African-Americans and, and, and Latinos and minorities. Part of his point on that was, how do we intercept those guns that are being used in these urban gangs and urban crimes? How do we intercept the flow of those guns? Because oftentimes they're coming from states that don't have universal background checks. uh, As Colorado does now. As Colorado does. What was the suggestion there? To really step up policing efforts towards going after where the guns are coming from. Shouldn't we look more frequently when we have a, a, a gun crime, a violent gun crime, maybe we should be prosecuting those in federal courts rather than local courts where generally the punishment is more significant. It's interesting. Both of those suggestions do not rely on gun control, right? A ban on a particular type of weapon, for instance, or on a magazine capacity or on background checks, but on the source of those guns. In some ways, aren't you making the point that it's not guns that kill people, it's people that kill people? No, I, I, again, in, on each of those panels, I bet we spent a significant amount of time on universal background checks and, and why they work and how they are a necessary component of really making sure that we keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. We also spoke about mental health. We talked about suicide and what a significant number of, of, the, of the total gun deaths in this country Almost two-thirds are either accidental uh, or, suicide, or from suicides, and the vast majority suicides. Let's do what we did with Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Let's go after and, and reach out, use gun shops and shooting ranges and pawn shops and get that information out that if your child is having a, a mental health crisis, make sure they, can't, they don't have access to a gun. At the Reuters Forum, a lot of blame for gun violence was put on the NRA. How much do you hold that group responsible? Well, I still cannot understand how they can oppose universal background checks. Literally, every you know, citizen, whether they're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent, almost, I mean, there may be one or two exceptions, everyone I know thinks it's a good idea, and yet they like to make it into this battle, and, and that, that you know, somehow the authorities are trying to take away your guns. The, the polling is generally in favor of background checks. It's not that everyone supports them. It is. And relative to how you poll things, it's one of the highest totals you'll ever see. You never get 100% on any poll that I've ever seen ever. But how can they be opposing universal background checks if, they help, if it helps keep, save lives and keep people safe? The Capitol is surrounded by scaffolding. We're hearing a little construction noise in the background. The Republican National Convention wraps up in Cleveland today. 
the police union in that city asked that concealed carry laws be suspended temporarily out of concerns of violence around the convention. Uh, Meanwhile, in Dallas, officials said that open carry laws make it harder for them to investigate the murder of the five law enforcement officers there. Have you heard from any police officers or public officials in Colorado on this issue? And would you be open to reevaluating Colorado's concealed carry laws? Well, I think what's happening in Colorado, but everywhere, is it is a, a frank discussion. And when Bill O'Reilly comes out and suggests that, you know, if terrorists in our own country are going to start using uh, uh, assault weapons with large magazines, maybe it's time to have a discussion. Is that a discussion you'd like to have happen in Colorado? Well, I think it's, it's unavoidable. I think we're going we're gonna to see that, that discussion is already happening. To the economy, you recently wrote a commentary for CNBC online called Colorado is the best for small business. You wrote that it's not expensive to start and register a business, and there's financial help available from the state. You cited a low income tax rate, a skilled workforce. By writing this on a national website, presumably even with an international audience, were you trying to get more people to move here? (laughs) Well, when you write uh, things like that, one thing you are trying to do is get certain types of people, people that are entrepreneurs or people that have businesses. Presumably, if they're successful, they then hire... More people. More people. Right, and so that and increases I, the number of jobs for the citizens of Colorado, increases their choices. One of the things we spend a lot of time focused on is how do we get our citizens to get higher wages? And the competing force here is, at what point do you stop selling the state because the population is just getting unsustainable? Well, I think that's a fair issue. If we're unable to make the investments in transportation, for whatever reason, right now we seem to be at loggerheads around the hospital provider fee and around whether we should take a timeout from Tabor. These are means, you you say, of freeing up more money for transportation and education. I mean, if we're stuck in in traffic gridlock, uh, no one's going to want to move here. You're you're not going to have to worry about the question. You know, at a certain point, people are going to look at how good a job can we do of maintaining our quality of life. You know, Hanging Lake is a classic example of it's a beautiful, beautiful destination. I've hiked up there a couple times, and we hear all summer that it's so busy, you can't get a space in the parking lot, even if you hang around for, you know, a half an hour, 45 minutes. I mean, I think there'd be people who'd say, you aren't striking a great balance today. Some. uh, Again, we try to talk to people from all walks of life. There certainly is a group there that says, you know, I got in here, I'm here, let's pull up the drawbridge, right? No more people coming into Colorado. Have you ever considered a maximum occupancy for the state? We looked at, from an environmental point of a carrying capacity. Exactly. And so what the, at what points do you, do you have water problems? What, what points do you have congestion that is, the mitigation is too expensive? At what point do you begin to destroy people's pleasure in things that they've always taken for granted? And is there a number? No, that's something that to opine on it is, you know, to try and put real numbers to it is incendiary, to say the least. And I think, it would, again, it's another one of these issues that takes a lot more conversation. And, and we, to be honest, I've never even seen a poll on it. I'm sure some people have polled it. Um, is there a point where you think you'd stop selling, quote unquote, this state? Well, I'm so sick of traveling, you know. <laughs> you go out, go out of, out of state or go around to, and do this stuff that, certainly wouldn't be a bad idea to take a few months off. (laughs) One effect of the population boom 
is that more people are building in the wildland urban interface, kind of a clunky term for where the city meets the forest. More people are also going out into the woods without understanding fire. And that's a reference to the campfire that apparently started the Cold Springs blaze in Boulder County. To what extent are destructive wildfires a result of growth? Well, I think that, I mean, we get a a large majority of our fires generated by lightning strikes. That being said, the more people you have who want to get out into the rural parts of the state, the higher the probability is that someone is going to make a mistake. It certainly puts greater pressure on us to find new ways. Social media is one example we've talked about of making sure that people do understand what is safe hiking, what is safe campfire utilization. In short, do you think the state could play a bigger role in being that voice? I think the state could be part of it. And and obviously, if you look at the natural allies that should participate in that kind of a network, I mean, hotels and restaurants at all have some benefit from people coming and visiting and then going away. You know, historically, there's always been among the majority of a pretty large majority of Coloradans, an appreciation that tourists that come and spend money and generate a significant amount of tax, and then they're out of our hair. It's something beneficial. But those who receive that benefit should probably share some of the responsibility to make sure that we are educating everyone about how our wildfires started and and how devastating they can be. I want to go back to this idea of growth versus the amount of money the state has to handle it for roads, etc. You mentioned the potential for a Tabor timeout, the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, a proposed measure doing just that to allow the state to keep excess tax revenue is no more. The organizers suspended their campaign earlier this week to try to get it on the ballot for November. You supported their efforts. Were you disappointed by the withdrawal of the ballot measure? Uh, The last discussion I heard that I was a part of, uh, they were still going forward. So I have not had a chance to talk to anyone and find out exactly what were the compelling reasons that pushed them to abandon the effort. And so where do you go from here to try to get additional money for transportation, education, especially given how poorly your hospital provider fee fared in the last session? And it seems that... Republicans are not uh, willing to compromise on this issue? Is it just that people get so sick of the traffic that they're driven, or or what? I think people will get more and more frustrated, and they're going to be asking their elected leaders, why couldn't you find a compromise? What what were the problems? You know, why is it that that we're stuck in these, you know, spending an hour getting to work and getting home? You're going to get a level of frustration that will motivate people to start calling their representatives and looking at what are the possible sources, right? There's, there's certain things we can do. We can do public-private partnerships. That helps a little bit, but they, that's not going to get us $250 million a year. We can get local participation. Uh, it's easier. Some communities, El Paso County, Colorado Springs, have passed their own local taxes, which they use then with some state money and some federal money to improve and add a lane on their interstate there. But the bigger issue is that that core amount that the state really needs to come to the table with. We'll obviously go leverage it with money from Washington and, and leverage it with local money, but the state's got to play its role as well. I want to end on a topic um, where your personal and professional lives cross. The AP's Sadie Gurman wrote recently that you are haunted by the killing of former prison's chief Tom Clements. He was your friend, and you brought him to the state to lead the Department of Corrections. He was later murdered by an inmate who was mistakenly out on parole. 
He may or may not have acted alone, and questions remain about that, but prosecutors in El Paso County told you recently that they intend to close the case. Uh, You have the option to appoint the state's attorney general as a special prosecutor. Will you do that to continue the investigation? Well, at this point, since the, the case is still open, even that is riding into dangerous territory. But I am in conversation with the attorney general. I am fully aware of what the choices are. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to uh, figure out what the appropriate path is. Are you doubtful that the killer acted alone? Because the real question here is whether this was a conspiracy. Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, at this point, until we get closure on between the attorney general, uh, the folks down in Colorado Springs and El Paso County, uh, it's better that I don't comment on that. But the conversations are ongoing with the attorney general? Yes, they are. Governor, thanks for being with us. No, my pleasure. Thank you. We spoke with Democrat John Hickenlooper at the state capitol Wednesday. Earlier, he mentioned not understanding why the National Rifle Association opposes expanded background checks. This is from the organization's website. NRA opposes expanding firearm background check systems because background checks don't stop serious criminals from getting guns and because NRA opposes gun registration. We'll be right back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Police shootings have, of course, been in the news a lot lately, whether it's controversial shootings by police of civilians or what appear to be retaliatory murders of police in Dallas and Baton Rouge. We've been asking you, our listeners, to weigh in with your views through CPR's Public Insight Network, We got more than 100 responses, and uh, Colorado Matters producer Michelle Fulcher has been reading through them. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm okay. Difficult topic, of course, really a series of topics, I suppose. What seems to be weighing most on the minds of the people in our Public Insight Network? Ryan, our first question was how the recent shootings had impacted our listeners' views of their communities or of their country. Several folks told us they are seeing impacts. Uh, For instance, Zach Ulrich of Aurora, he's 32, he works in human services. Zach said there's, using his words here, a second civil rights movement stirring. And as a white man, he's fine with that. He wrote, while it's sad that it takes incidents like these to bring about real calls for societal change, I think that overall, this is probably a natural process our society needs to go through in order to grow. Mm. Another response from Marilyn Morgan. She's 61. She's from Denver. She's Hispanic. Marilyn said she worries about cases of excessive force that have been lodged against Denver deputies and police. She says in some cases, those officers haven't been prosecuted or they were suspended and then reinstated. She wrote, I'm worried that due process was not afforded to either side in the various decisions that have been made. She did offer a more hopeful thought. She said she thinks a lot of progress has been made on civil rights in general. But she added that the tone of the overall political debate that we're hearing out there these days is really vitriolic. She wrote, we're more concerned with the spin rather than collecting the data to show the truth of what's happening. We also asked about the media, including ourselves, how uh, journalists are reporting on these issues. And what did you see there in terms of responses? So we talked to her, beg your pardon, we got a response from Tim Mensch. He's a game developer from Boulder. He's white. He said a lot of these issues are just getting more attention than they did before. 
He wrote, Black people have been disproportionately targeted and killed for decades. Our cultural prejudice is deep. But he also feels like some good news is getting lost. He points out that crime has been dropping and fewer people are being killed in crimes. We checked on what Tim had to say, and in fact, violent crime has dropped by more than half since it peaked in 1991. It's now about 365 crimes per 100,000 people. And the rate of murder and manslaughter is at its lowest point since at least the late 1960s. The statistics about killings, we should note, uh, do not include the people who died on September 11th, 2001. Other comments on this issue of, of the media covering the shootings? Eric Ross of Denver is white. He's 47. He wants the media to look more deeply at some of the root causes of what's going on, especially as it pertains to law enforcement. He says police aren't paid very well, they're under a lot of stress, a lot of demands from the public, and they aren't getting enough training in how to manage conflict on the streets or deal with mental illness. Basically, he said law enforcement is just underfunded. Uh, He wrote, we want beat cops, but there aren't even enough officers to provide bare minimum response or calls for service, much less to walk and talk with neighbors and business owners the way you'd expect a beat cop to do. Then, Ryan, we also heard on this question from Carolyn Love, an African-American woman who lives in Broomfield. She talked about her experience with race in America, saying that tensions are continuing to grow, to fester, in her words. And she said, emotionally charged racial sentiments are like fault lines running through every city and town in the U.S. Like fault lines. Hmm. Yeah, interesting phrase. As for the media, she thinks that reporters should look beyond just the violence that's occurring uh, against men of color to what's happening with African-American and Latina women. She wrote, using a broader lens may reveal an even more frightening story about the state of race in America. Finally, we wanted to know how parents are talking to their children about what's happening. Um, Give us a sample of the responses there through our Public Insight Network. One that caught my eye, Ryan, was from Jill Hamilton of Denver. She's white. She's the single parent of an 11-year-old girl. Jill and her daughter were downtown recently waiting for a bus. A group of Black Lives Matter protesters was walking down the mall, and there were a lot of police around. So Jill and her daughter get home. They're talking about what they saw, and the little girl said it was scary to have all those police around. And Jill said, Yeah, it was for her, too. And then she added that the police were there for everybody's safety. At the end of her note to us, Jill wrote that she thinks her daughter understands a lot more of what's going on than maybe mom thinks. But in Jill's words, it still hurts that this is the world we have created. Thanks for sharing some of the responses with us, Michelle. Thanks, Ryan. Michelle Fulcher is a Colorado Matters producer, and you too can be a part of our Public Insight Network and share what you know by joining online at cprnews.org. And our program continues in just a bit on Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Did you know that one of Shakespeare's most famous lines from Hamlet, There Lies the Rub?, Is a lawn bowling term? Or that the word jazz, long associated with music, may have first been used in baseball? 
Everyday language is filled with sports terms. And Denver author Josh Chetwind has written about this in a new book. It's called The Field Guide to Sports Metaphors. He's not just a writer, by the way, uh, but a former minor league baseball player. Josh, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Great to be here. What's the most fascinating story you came across in this analysis of sports metaphors? Well, I'll tell you what the funniest one was. Okay. And it was cry-uncle or say-uncle. Now, I realize that's a bit of a cheat because we use that term in backyard wrestling matches. But it was such a great story that I had to include it. Okay. And basically the way it goes is that it was a joke that was in newspapers in England at the end of the 18th, 1800s. And basically the way the joke went was that a man had received a parrot from uh, his niece. And he wanted to get him to say uncle. Kept on saying, say uncle, say uncle. He got to the point where he started physically accosting the parrot. Got so upset because the parrot wouldn't do it. He sends the parrot into a coop with a bunch of prize fowls. Walks away, gets a second thought about it and realizes, oh no, this parrot's going to be beaten up or eaten or crushed by these fowls. (laughs) So he goes back, but what he sees is that eight of the nine fowls are dead and the ninth one is being choked by the parrot and the parrot is saying, say uncle. This joke was so popular. I know it seems a little weird now, but the joke was so popular in England that it actually spread to U.S. newspapers and kind of went viral and was so useful in newspapers. It lasted almost 20 years in various publications. And that's why we got the term. And of course, it means uh, to to give up, to say, I I can't take it anymore. Yeah, to capitulate. Which was happening with that bird. Why did you decide to tackle sports idioms. Well, I've written six books and there's a through line for all these books. And and that through line is that I'm looking for things that seem so obvious that we take for granted often, whether it's language or culture and actually have really interesting backgrounds. And I wrote a book called The Book of Nice, for example, and we say hello every day, but we don't give a second thought to where it comes from. And and the reality is, is it has a very interesting background. And so many words that we use that come from the world of sports, we do the same thing. We say cover your bases without giving it a second thought. Yeah, and and when people say these terms who aren't necessarily even fans of the particular sport, you know... Uh, that's off base, something like that. Yeah, and that's one of the things I'm always going for too, which is to take areas of, whether it's language or culture, that maybe you don't think you have an interest in, but actually really apply to your life. Well, you should tell us the hello story. If you're going to raise the specter of that, what is the hello story? Well, the hello story involves Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Edison. And these were the two great founders of the telephone. And what we don't realize is when the telephone was invented, we didn't have a word to use when we answered the phone. Because when we met people on the street, we'd say, how do you do? Or pleased to meet you. And there was a disagreement over what word they should use. Alexander Graham Bell wanted everyone to say ahoy, or actually say ahoy, ahoy when they answered the phone. He liked the nautical vibe. But Thomas Edison, who had a relationship with Western Union, who was the first big operator of telephones, wanted to go with hello, which was this really obscure term. He went out, and that's why we say hello. Hello, and not ahoy, ahoy. Exactly. I'm so glad that ahoy, ahoy did not get chosen. All right, back to some of these sports metaphors, and the question of jazz and its origins. Yeah, this is a surprising one because everyone, of course, connects it to the great American form of music. But jazz was actually a term that was used in baseball for vim or vigor or pep. So playing with a lot of jazz was playing with a lot of energy. Hmm. And the term was used in the Pacific Coast League, which was a minor league based in the Western United States before baseball had made its movement all the way across the continent. And there was a journalist who used it for a San Francisco 
paper. Now, he was at a spring training in Napa Valley, and it just so happened there were a group of musicians there as well who were performing at the same hotel. A couple of the musicians heard the term. One of them ended up going to Chicago and used it as a synonym for the blues. Now, of course, jazz started in New Orleans and Chicago as a musical form, but it wasn't until this particular musician went to Chicago and started using it in this way that we got a term for it. But transferred, in essence, from baseball is what you're saying. Huh. Are new sports metaphors being coined or are they all sort of old, you know, carryovers, if you will? There was definitely a period where sports metaphors had their greatest growth. And that was in the period in the first 30 to 40 years of the 20th century. And the reason for that was that was a period when so many great literary writers were writing about sports. You had Ernest Hemingway, you had Grantland Rice, you had Damon Runyon. So all of these writers were using these terms. And it was also a period where newspapers had so much interest and so much uh, attention amongst everyday people. So these terms really stuck. We don't have that as much anymore. So when you think about where you get your news from, some people get it from one source, someone gets it from another. We're so fragmented that it's much more difficult. There are examples. Baller is one that a lot of people use now. You're a baller. You're, you know, it's like a hip person and you're doing sort of interesting thing, living extravagantly. But that's a rarity. And I wonder to what extent as we move forward, we're going to see a decreasing number of sports idioms that get sort of worldwide attention. All right. You dive into the phrase saved by the bell. I had heard an alternate explanation. uh, There's a book called Stiff by Mary Roach, which is about the history of corpses, essentially, and what we've done with our dead. Her assertion was that saved by the bell related to waiting mortuaries. So for a while, uh, until people could be sure that you were dead, they would put you on a slab And they would apparently connect a string to you to a central room with a bunch of bells. And if the bells rang, they knew you weren't actually dead and that you weren't supposed to be buried. That that is the origin of Saved by the Bell. You have a different one in your book. Yeah, the story that you heard is a long-time claim. It's a popular one on uh-huh. the internet. And so it was one that I did a lot of research on to, to debunk. And there are variations on it. You told one version. Another version was that actually coffins had the bell attached to them so that the bell would actually go up above the ground from where the coffin was located so that if you happened to wake up because there were instances where people actually hadn't died and they thought they had died you could actually uh, make a sound so great was the fear of being buried alive i guess exactly and that fear it was legitimate did exist but there is no examples i did a lot of research trying to find some statement where this actually did occur and where people had the bells it's apocryphal as far as i could tell and i had a lot of examples of saved by the bell used in the boxing And that means that you have to do a lot of, well, as you say, debunking, because uh, I think there's there's just there's so much lore sometimes surrounding language and expressions. Yeah. I mean, anything that you're dealing with where you're dealing with history, there is that that issue. I did a book on accidental discoveries and unexpected inspirations in the kitchen. And it was very similar. We have these great stories that sort of suggest the food came from an interesting location and it turns out not to be the case. And so, so much of this is really trying to, the way I describe it, it's, it's linguistic CSI. There's never a smoking gun. You can't, It's rare, at least, that you can point to one person and say, that was the person who coined it and that's where it came from. So you're spending a lot of time trying to pull all the clues together to reach critical mass to make a point. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Colorado author Josh Chetwind, 
whose new book is called The Field Guide to Sports Metaphors. I wonder if there's one you came across that you really didn't use before writing the book and now use because you were exposed to it. Well, it's funny you bring that up because I grew up playing sports, as you alluded to. I played uh, college baseball and then professionally. And one of the things I had to get over when I was doing this book was that when I was a kid, everyone would always talk to me in sports metaphors. They thought that was the lingua franca for anyone who played sports. (laughs) And so I grew to hate these phrases, so many of them. Hit one out of the ballpark slugger. I mean, stuff like that. Oh, gosh, okay. And like so someone always, trying to be hip in front of you. Exactly. Well, trying to connect. And, and to be honest, that's sort of the nature of sports metaphors, right? It's that shortcut in order for people to connect. And, and politics is where it's used the most. So for the most part, I haven't changed my, my linguistic pattern as a result of this. But the backstories make you think a lot more about why you use them. Cover Your Bases is probably my favorite story along those lines. But tell it to us. So Cover Your Bases, we all know it's making sure that you've gotten everything right. And, and what that story tells us is just how much timing is everything for an idiom's creation and development and popularity. Because right before that phrase became popular, if we had have looked at baseball in the 1850s, the phrase should have been soak your runners. And the reason for that is that rather than covering a base, what you could do in the early days of baseball is actually throw the ball and hit a runner. So you wouldn't have to cover the base to get him out. You would soak, which was the term for hitting the runner, the runner. And that could have been the phrase. So if the rules had have stayed the same in baseball in that direction, we'd be using a completely different phrase than what we use. To go back to more modern phrases, I think of things like soccer mom and NASCAR dad as descriptions of people um, and that th- those are more modern inventions, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I think up until 2000, you had quite a few that really definitely coalesced. Soccer Mom really got attention in 1995 here in Denver. There was a city council uh, race and a woman by the name of Susan Casey used that, although the term had existed really since the 1980s. But I love that subset, by the way. I just need to just say for a moment of words or phrases that come from the actual names of sports. So you have uh, inside baseball, you have Uh. the political football, or if you want to get Randy, you have tonsil hockey or the golf clap, right? (laughs) So I love those, but uh, you're right. And I think that also goes back to right before the start of the 21st century was that last period where everyone sort of went to the same sources for their news, for their language, for their popular culture. And we really look at 2000 in many ways is that dividing line where after that, we're in a position where we don't all agree. We don't all look to the same places for language and for culture. And as a result, it's more difficult after that period. This has been fascinating. Josh, thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Josh Chetwind of Denver, author of The Field Guide to Sports Metaphors. He'll be at Barnes & Noble in Glendale. That's just outside Denver, Saturday. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What kind of toy would prepare kids to work with robots? You can find one possible answer in the Robot Revolution exhibit at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Near the exit, there's a table with an array of colored blocks. They're called cubelets, and they're made in Boulder. Brian Hostedler is with the museum. The cubelets are basically modular bits of robot. Each section, each little cube that you have, not only has a physical presence, it does something, or it has a physical sensor, or it has a battery. The blocks got Jordan Nealon's attention. He's a ninth grader who was on a field trip from Thornton. I'm just going to try to make a little car. But he realized quickly that each block is specialized. This looks like a light, but this one's going to start to wonder. 
Rotator. What does the rotator do? Probably rotates a piece. Then he went for other blocks. Light blocks, light sensor blocks, blocks with knobs. Fiddle around. That's how you do it. Best way to do things. Fiddle around. See what you get. And what he got was a tool that measures light. One block reads light levels. Another displays them. Neeland imagined it could help people find sunny spots in their gardens. In all, it took him about seven minutes. Eric Schweikart, his inventor of cubelets, he leads Modular Robotics in Boulder, which develops and markets the toy. And uh, Eric, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Happy to be here. Okay, the second you make play about something more than play, right, trying to teach a lesson, don't you ruin the fun? Depends what you tell kids. Uh, It depends if you tell them they're being educational or not. With Modular Robotics, a bunch of the things that we try and do with cubelets are a bit... Uh, subversive, maybe? Subversive. Yeah, so you think about playing with Legos. When you play with Legos, you're not learning about friction, structure, and shape, but you're gaining these intuitions by playing so that later on when you get to physics, the Greek letters and everything sort of make sense. You understand how things are going to react, and the Greek letters are just describing behavior that you're familiar with. When we're playing with cubelets, we're not trying to teach kids about networking or inputs or outputs or control or feedback or loops or recursion, but we're trying to give them uh, the ability, the muscle memory, the intuitions about how these things work so that when they encounter them later on in life, it sort of makes sense. Them being these concepts, the concepts that they represent and the actions that they do because they, they sense, you say, they think, they act. You've brought some cubelets with you. Yeah, I did. And sensing and thinking and acting is basically our working definition of robotics. Um, people can argue for hours about what's a robot, what do robots do. And for us, robot, robots are any devices that sense, that have inputs, that think, that do planning or processing, and that act. Okay. So they are plastic with it looks like metal in the middle. And I could connect how many of these together? You can connect as many as you want. They're just basically simple robot blocks. So here I've got a couple of them. I brought a kit of 12 with me, uh, the basic standard kit, uh, and an additional speaker cubelet because we're on the radio and audio works better on the radio than lots of visual stuff. Okay. We'll demonstrate that. So here I've got three cubelets. I've got a blue-gray one that's a battery block with a USB port, and I'll click it onto a speaker cubelet. And nothing happens now because we have a thinking cubelet and an act cubelet, but no sensing. So Mm. I've got this infrared distance sensor, and I'll snap that on. Now nothing's happening as well because the infrared distance sensor is not detecting anything, but as it starts to detect my hand, it sends data values to its neighbor, the speaker cubelet, and the speaker cubelet acts upon that data. And these three combined, you have, so I have a fourth I can hand you. What are you going to do with it? Uh, Well, so this one's an example of a thinking cubelet. It's a pink inverse cubelet. And the behavior we had before was when the distance sensor detects something, it sends a high value to its neighbor and the speaker block makes beeping noises. Now I'll take the inverse block and put it in between and the behavior is reversed. Now when it doesn't detect anything, there's a lot of beeping. And as I bring my hand closer... Ah, you are stopping the sound in that case. And in this combination, you've taught a child about the energy, the fuel that is going to power the robot, uh, the thing the robot is going to detect, how it's going to detect it, and then how it's going to alert you. Uh, you are an architect by training. Indeed. Yeah. How, how does uh, architecture lead to this kind of thinking? 
Uh, a lot of people think that's really incongruous, but this is basically building, right? These are building blocks, and these are modern building blocks with robotic stuff inside of them. Um, their genesis actually came out of architecture. I was working in Boulder on a bunch of mixed-use architecture projects, and work as a junior-level architect is really awful, usually. <laughs> and mixed-use meaning you live there, you might work there, there might be shops and you know businesses and residents. Exactly, like uh, Main Street North and Boulder and examples like that. Uh, I've been working as an architect for about seven years after school, sitting behind three monitors, uh, gradually getting carpal tunnel syndrome until eventually I threw up my hands and thought there has to be some sort of better way for creative people to interact with computation than always sitting behind monitors, mice, and keyboards drawing things on a screen. So the genesis of Cubelets was sort of thinking about digital clay, digital type construction materials. Digital clay. That's a cool concept. Wouldn't it be? These are a little higher resolution or I guess lower resolution than clay so you can't quite sculpt with them. They're 40 millimeters. Um, But tools, physical, tangible tools that enable creative people to interact with computation without always having to sit behind a screen, I think can be very valuable. And do you think that that's reflected in STEM education today? So science, technology, engineering, and math, this over-reliance perhaps on, I don't know, things that aren't fun enough or... I do. Uh, You know, screens are wonderful because hardware is hard. Building custom hardware is hard. So now that we have supercomputers in our pocket, it's much easier to create little software applications that run on the phone or that run on Chromebooks or iPads that people have in schools. It's very difficult and resource challenging and time challenging to create new physical hardware. Yeah, tactile experiences become difficult in that regard. Indeed. And so you wanted to create the tactile. Uh, Are these just for, I don't know, wealthy kids of wealthy families, you know, who can afford to kind of nerd out? They're definitely for those people, uh, but they're also in play in lots and lots of science museums, schools, summer camps, places like the Denver Museum of Nature and Science Robot Revolution, and in thousands and thousands of schools all over the world. Have kids surprised you putting them together? Have they done things you didn't anticipate that these robots could do? Oh, yeah, all over the place. Kids are insane, especially when (laughs) kids get access to like, you know, a lot of schools like St. Vrain Valley School, Flatirons Elementary. We have thousands and thousands of cubelets in those schools, and when kids get access to a huge pile and start making giant complicated constructions that are a little more complicated than we might have even imagined, they can build some crazy stuff. What have you seen them build? I like uh, seeing some of the grids that they make of LEDs. Uh, so we have uh, flashlight cubelets and they can interact with all of their neighbors. And depending on how you put them together, you can make a wall of cubelets that responds to your touch. You can make a wall of cubelets that reacts back to you based on distance sensors. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. I spoke with Eric Schweikart earlier this year. He invented robot construction kits for kids called Cubelets. His company, Modular Robotics, is based in Boulder. Cubelets are part of Robot Revolution at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science through August 7th. Finally today, each summer, aspiring young classical musicians come to Colorado to train and perform, including at the National Repertory Orchestra in Breckenridge. Students there are immersed in the orchestral life. Despite long odds, they hope to land professional symphony jobs. Violinist Madeleine Vaillancourt, who serves as co-concertmaster, says becoming a pro is daunting. It takes patience, discipline, and thick skin. You're going to be shot down so many times. The number of rejections you're going to get to the number of successes you're going to have is usually going to be like 10 times as much. 
you might as well get used to that and remind yourself why you're doing this, which is because you love music and you can't see yourself doing anything else, which is definitely true for me. A highlight at this year's National Repertory Orchestra featured Vaillancourt in a performance of Dvorak's Violin Concerto. You're hearing that now. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.